This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 162, and today I sat down with Alicia Liu, the founder and CEO of Lavender and Truffles. Lavender and Truffles is a handcrafted, plant-based ice cream brand made from oat milk that focuses on natural, clean ingredients with unique Asian-inspired flavors that are gluten-free, vegan, and delicious. Alicia shares her story from growing up with dreams of becoming an artist, to working in graphic design, to climbing the corporate fashion ladder at Prada, Dolce & Gabbana, Miss 60, and Century 21, to deciding to start her first company, Lavender and Truffles, during the pandemic. Pandemic. She talks about the influence her father had on her career path, why she finally decided to focus full-time on her startup, and how she's learned that every penny counts. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Alicia. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in starting and building Lavender Truffles. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about your product. It's so cute. I love it. I've been enjoying it since you personally delivered it the other day. (laughs) I mean, that's like door-to-door service right there. It was beautiful. Yeah, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) And so let's start from the very beginning about, you know, where you're from, what childhood was like, what kind of kid were you? I want to say I had a relatively normal-ish childhood. I mean, I was born in Argentina. My dad's whole side of the family moved to Argentina, then moved to America. I was one and a half years old, so I don't remember much. But the whole plan was to immigrate to America. So the whole side of family came here. My mom and my dad were dating quite young in their early 20s back in Taiwan. And then when the family decided to move, my dad popped the question and said, come with us. So she said, okay. And they all moved over there. My grandfather was in politics and it was just got to a point where it was just too corrupt for him to kind of keep going. And he wanted to leave that career. So he took the whole family, moved to Argentina, and they opened up a restaurant. And that was their first culinary experience. And they met my aunt and her family who were trained in the emperor's kitchen, uh, the last emperor of mainland China. So they brought all this wealth of knowledge of cooking and culinary arts. And her family taught my family a lot of recipes, techniques. And they were there for about five years until they decided to move to America. 
And once we came to New York, my dad, there were four brothers, my dad and the oldest uncle decided not to go into culinary anymore because they were running the restaurant. And it's back in the day, it's pretty grueling. You don't have a dishwasher, you're hand washing everything, everything's done by hand, there's not a lot of tools. So they said, yeah, we're done with this kind of career. And they moved into different careers. My mom and my dad ended up being knitwear contractors. Uh, They went into the fashion world on the production level. So they had a factory and they were producing sweaters and knitwear for our private label for Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Bergdorf Goodman. So they got into the high end kind of marketplace where the younger two uncles, they they continue to become restaurateurs here in America and open up bars and restaurants. So food was always around our family. My dad has always been the main chef. So he always cooked like the big holidays, uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Chinese New Year, Christmas, Thanksgiving, while my mom did the everyday cooking. And then, you know, we grew up on, in Queens, then Long Island, Pretty normal-ish. It was just me and my sister and the youngest. She's about two and a half, three years older than me. We ran in different circles, so we didn't really hang out too much. We weren't that close. I mean, we got along, but I can't say we were close. Uh, We just did very, very different things. She was more musically inclined. I was more art inclined. I also played a lot of sports. So we kind of went off our different path. And then college rolled around. She went to uh, Delphi University, which is a private school, and then sucked up all the funds. <laughs> so my dad said, sorry, my dear, you're going to have to go to a state school. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, That's funny. But before you go to the state school, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a kid, what did you dream of becoming? Art and designing was always part of my life. Like a fashion designer because you were exposed to the fashion industry, right? So were you like, oh, I want to be a fashion designer? Was it anything specific? No, because I didn't know what fashion designing was. My Mm. mom was a fine art painter. She was trained classically in Asian painting, Chinese painting. So I always had um, fine art skills in my background and took it to AP art. My art teacher was a big influence on me during high school, pushing me to do AP courses and in teaching me about new artists and taking me to museums, to incredible openings. So that had a big impact on me. And when I decided at university where I was going to study, I was going to study fine art and become an artist. But I told my parents, being that they're Asian parents and they, you know, had the practical side, they told me I had to go to business school. So I told them I was majoring business and minoring in art, but in actuality, I actually majored in art and minored in business. So (laughs) they never knew that. (laughs) A little flip and switch there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so looking back though on your childhood, were there any moments of that you kind of see entrepreneurial spirit kind of come out a little bit. And I mean, being an entrepreneur is a very creative type of job. I mean, you are building something, creating something from scratch. Do you see any of that kind of as a kid that you did? I mean, obviously, there's the classic lemonade stand, or maybe there's some kind of creative problem solving that you did or just something unique. Does anything stick out? Never. 
It yeah. never occurred to me when I was younger. Cooking always occurred. I always had my friends come over and I would cook for them. I would have my friends, my parents' friends come over and we cook for them. So cooking was always part of it, but never to start my own business, never to be an entrepreneur, never to be a founder. My parents, even though they were entrepreneurs themselves and had their own business all the time, they always steered myself and my sister away from it because, you know, as I realize now, it is a very grueling lifestyle. You know, you're always on it and you're never just hitting a number and that's enough and you've hit your number. So now you can coast as a founder and as an entrepreneur, you're always looking to do better. You're always looking to do more. There's, you're never closed or, you know, clocking out at a certain time, you're just constantly in business. So I think my dad never really wanted us to have that lifestyle because also being immigrants, they had all those challenges of language barriers. You know, they didn't speak English. It wasn't even their second language. Spanish was. So English was their third. So having to overcome that too, they've always geared us towards get a corporate job. You get a corporate job, you get the paycheck, you get the 401k, get the insurance. Very important to have the insurance. <laughs> just, that was what I remembered is to like ingrain that in our head. Got to get the job. Got to have the benefits. It's super important. Right, right. They're like, we're in America now. We need to... <laughs> got to get the benefits. Yeah. So that's how I've always, you know, worked towards it get a great job. And my art was always kind of my creative outlet. You know, I enjoy doing it. I mm -hmm. did well. I scored well, even though it's art. And how do you grade artwork? But I always had A's in every class and it was just, you know, my, my GPA was high because of it. So I kept yeah. that throughout school. And so you graduated with this major in fine art. And a minor, I guess, in business. What did you end up doing? What were some of your first jobs out of school? My first job, when my dad kind of found out that I was still doing art, and he's like, what are you going to do with that? I was like, well, I'm going to be an artist. It's like, there's no money in that. You need to find a job in business. Oh, <laughs> so no. So you're like this, uh, oh, man, now I feel like you were, <laughs> could have been this like super famous artist, right? I and could have been. <laughs> yeah. Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> but I found. We understand why parents do this and it's yeah. just uh, brutal. But I found a happy medium. I researched and I understood there was commercial art. And what does that entail? And then I found out that you can be a graphic designer. So you can create art and be creative on the computers. And I was always very computer literate, you know, Tetris and putting puzzles and numbers together was easy. Computation things were very easy for me. Math, I was good at math. So I took my first job as an assistant graphic designer at a sign company in Queens. And we made signs for grand openings, for posters. It was called the Five Borough Banner and Sign Company. And it's like, you know, when you see those car grand opening, the little pellet flags. So we did all that. <laughs> so that's where it all started. And then also when I went to Albany, there's not much to do there. 
So I did everything I could not to go to class. And I did full-time internships. I did study abroad for a semester. I did everything I could so I didn't have to go to class. Right. But that doesn't make any sense because you were actually good at school. I mean, for me, that like I didn't enjoy school at all. I was avoiding it at all costs. But it sounds like you were actually good at it. So didn't you enjoy it and want to like show up? Well, I was good at the art classes and I was good at the math classes. But, you know, there's still, you know, standard classes that you have to take to graduate, you know, so So English and science and all those liberal arts classes. And I was not good at sitting in a lecture hall for an hour and a half, two hours. It's just exhausting. And those classes I would get like C's in. Or worse. Oh, wow. Now I don't feel so bad, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but how I connected to graphic design is I did a full time internship at an ad agency because one of my roommates said, you know, if you don't want to do this class, one of her sorority sisters did an internship in communication major. And I was like, well, I'm going to do that. So instead of going to class for a semester, I actually went to work. And I went to work in an ad agency in the art department, and I just actually constructed, you know, decks for them physically, you know, when they can use for their meetings and they open up the transparency slide and I would build all that. And one of the fellow interns was kind of busy on the side doing her own thing. It was like her last week. And I was like, hey, what are you doing over there? She's like, I'm doing my resume. And she constructed this resume in this beautiful envelope. She hand cut every note and paper and created this like card set. And she's like, yeah, I'm applying for an internship at a magazine in New York City. I was like, well, I want to do that. (laughs) So. I worked with her and I did my resume and I sent it out to a bunch of fashion and art magazines that had, at the time, internships weren't paid. And I got a summer internship with Elle magazine and Mirabella magazine, which has since folded. So I went to work like three or four times a week during the summer and went on photo shoots, understood what the fashion world was about, and, you know, prepared samples, sample inventory, and decks there as well. Um, and that's when I decided, okay, I think I could make this a career. So after my graphic design stint for the summer, after I graduated, I went back to Mirabelle Magazine to see my old boss. And I said, I graduated, I have some full-time experience now, and just want to see if there's any job openings. And she's like, well, I, I don't have any, but if you skip down the block, Prada just opened up their office here in the U.S. And Leslie Johnson, who was a senior fashion editor at Mirabella, is now the head of PR there. She's there, want you go down there, drop off your resume, and let her know I sent you. I said, okay. And I've been on uh, one or two photo shoots with Leslie, but I mean, I was in internship. She didn't remember. Right. But I went down there and I knocked on the door and this girl answered who I actually interned that same summer with. Mm -hmm. And she was the receptionist there. Oh, cool. And I said, I wanted to drop off my resume because I used to go on photo shoots with Leslie. And if you can give it to her. She's like, yeah, sure. So she shut the door. She's like, just hold on one second. So she took a peek at the resume. Uh, And she saw that I interned at Mirabella. She told Leslie, she's like, there's a girl here. 
she wants a job and she worked at Millibrella when I worked there and when you worked there. So they both came back to the door. They're like, Alicia, we both interned at Mirabelle together. I'm like, I think I know that. I think I remember you. Yeah. And it just so happened they just launched Mew Mew, their mm-hmm. secondary line, mm-hmm. and they were showing here in New York at Bryant Park. Nice. And Leslie pulled me in and she said, you know, it just so happens that we need extra help to produce the Mimi show for three months. Would you like to come work with us for three months? And I said, absolutely. And she's like, let me set up a meeting with you and the president. He just needs to meet everyone before we officially hire everyone. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. Went in for the interview. Obviously, I was the only one interviewing. (laughs) I got the job and it's for three months. And she said, you never know what might happen. So it was fantastic. It was a great experience. And post three months, they offered me a job. Great. Primarily because I was just filing everyone's expense reports on Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> That's why they're like, we need to keep her around. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, this is 1994. We had one computer. It was one of those beige computers, IBMs, in our office. And no one knew how to use a computer. That's so funny. So I would file everyone's expense report. And the commercial director noticed that I was doing all this and I was quite good with spreadsheets and math. And she asked me, when is your last day? And I told her, I don't know, this week or next week. She's like, well, I might need some help. You're pretty good at spreadsheets. I was like, well, I don't really know how to do spreadsheets. I just know I can sum up here and divide here. She's like, but I can teach you all that. Mm, I was like, nice. Okay. They ended up, you know, hiring me full time. And after a few, I think maybe after a year, I decided, huh, I think I can make a career out of this and I want to. And I made the decision that I want to go back to grad school. And what made you decide to go to grad school? Like why? You didn't even want to show up at your last couple of classes. I, <laughs> <laughs> I decided I wanted to go into international business. So I was working quite closely with the president at the time. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about going back to school. And he's like, why? <laughs> right. He's like, you have a job here. Why would you want to go back to school? I'm like, I think I want to make a career out of this and go into international business or something. And he said, you know what? I'm going to double your salary. You're going to stay right here. I'm going to teach you everything you need to know. Nice. And I ended up working there for the next four years and ended up uh, managing my own department. Do you feel like you got your uh, grad school equivalent? I think so. I think so. (laughs) Uh, I saved a lot of money. (laughs) He's like, you don't need to spend all that money. I will give you more money. You'll stay right here. I'll teach you everything you need to know. And, And he did. He took me under his wing and I'll never forget it. There's two people in my whole career that has made a big pivotal impact and he was one of them. You know, there's very few game changers like that. And I am glad that you kind of mentioned that. Even in my own life, I have very specific like two key people probably that have been major game changers in giving me an opportunity and it just changing my life into a different direction. It's It's so important that, you know, we as even just like looking back, I'm like, how can I be that kind of person for someone else? You know, Mm -hmm. it's such an important role in someone's life. 
So you were at Prada. I know you went to Dolce & Gabbana. You were at 60. So you have this, and even Century 21, you have this incredible, you know, kind of background in fashion. Then you go to Amazon. How did that happen? What, what, so you kind of worked your way up the ladder in the fashion industry. What made you want to go to Amazon? And then I can't wait to hear how you kind of uh, got into your current role now. Yeah. I mean, it was this gentleman, his name is Patricio DeMarco. He was the president of Prada. It was that moment working with him when I realized, oh, I think I want to be a CEO or president of a company one day like him. Yeah. And that's when I first got the, my initial inkling of running a business, but never still not knowing to run the business for myself, more for someone else. And so I kind of started a career path heading in that direction. But, you know, life happens and personal things happen and you meet someone and you have a baby and, you know, you put things on pause. And that's essentially what happened after working up ranks to be a manager, director, senior director in the fashion world. You know, I took a break from my daughter and decided to take a year or two off because it came to a point where I was jumping around from Prada to Dolce Gabbana to Secrets and Morrison to other fashion companies. But most of these companies were all doing the same thing. It was just musical chairs, you know, someone's just moving to a different company, but running the same strategy everywhere you go. And I didn't feel like I was learning anything new or doing anything new if I wanted to be a true leader. And my last job before I switched over to digital was with Miss 60, which is an Italian Demon brand. And I worked with this gentleman, Andrew Pollard, who was the second person that was pivotal in my career, who also took me under his wing. And since Miss 60, I've worked with him at multiple companies after that. And he's always uh, ahead of his time when it comes to business strategies and new concepts. And when I took a break in my career for my daughter and ready to get back in, I gave him a call. And I said, listen, I don't want to really go back doing the same thing I was doing and running the same strategies just for a different company. Um, I want to do something different. What do you think I should do? And he's like, digital. You got to go digital. He's like, the whole landscape is changing from brick and mortar to digital. And this was like early, like 2010, when we first had the conversation. And I thought, okay, well, this digital e-commerce, and I spoke to some people who switched over to e-commerce, but they had to really start back at the bottom to understand it. And I thought, okay, I have to go back to school for digital, digital marketing, merchandising, SEO, and all that stuff. Lo and behold, serendipitously, an old colleague of mine said, hey, I got this recruiter calling me. I'm not interested, but if you are, I'm going to forward him to you. I was like, great. It's for Amazon. I was like, oh, interesting. And they were in the heyday of flash sales with Guilt Group, Rulala. Did you have to do the grueling interview process? Did they have that then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I've been through that process. I didn't make it. Oh, my goodness. It is grueling. I think we the were lucky. You know, I did that actually. <laughs> actually, I did that interview process literally like maybe 10 days after giving birth to my son. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, and I had a C-section. Like- so I was like, you know, after major surgery, like just getting off drugs. <laughs> and I had to do this crazy three-hour, it's a seven-hour thing. 
right? It's like oh, four it was hours two days. Hours. Yeah, they split it up into two days because it's each like oh, yeah. four hours each. I mean, and it's so stressful to try to prepare for that. And like, yeah, I was like in the hospital preparing for an Amazon interview that it ended up getting, <laughs> which I'm glad I didn't. I don't think I would have fit in, but how annoying. <laughs> yeah, I think none of us really fit in. We went through the people that have passed through it. We got there we're like, where are we? But it was their first satellite office outside of Seattle. They want to get into this flash sales business and they desperately want to get into the fashion industry. And they thought this was probably a great way to do it. And if they wanted to do it right, they would have to have an office in New York. So I was their third hire. But yeah, they flew us out to Seattle for a two-day back-to-back, nine meetings, three phone screens prior first, and then they fly you out there. (laughs) And you had these people interviewing you with their laptops, like slamming the keyboard right. as you're yeah, they're talking. taking like, like mad notes. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, I don't know why you're typing like this. Like, yeah. But they're like filling out forms or something. They're like, they have yeah. their own little thing on how to interview and like how to take the notes. I don't know. It's also. Yeah. yeah. I just didn't understand what was going on. I just kind of rolled with it. I was like, okay, whatever. At that point, I didn't want the job initially. I was like, I'm just going to go through the process. I mean, it pays I need really well. So you're like, yeah. why not? I mean, and they're paying for me to fly out there. I'm like, I've never right. been to Seattle. I always want to see it. So right. went through it. They came back with an offer and I was shocked that they came with an offer because I just, I don't think I was trying very hard to get the job, but I got it. And three of us started the company for the first six months. And then they started to hire the next wave of people. But that I spent about two and a half years there. It's probably equivalent of being uh, e-commerce or director of e-commerce, four to five years experience, all crammed into two yeah. and a half years. And what a crazy experience that was. I learned so much about e-commerce, digital marketing, site merchandising, how to launch a site properly with a very skeletal team in New York. And they still have that very entrepreneurial environment, even though at that time they were already 10 years old, Amazon. But to have all the resources at your fingertips at any time and call up your counterpart in Seattle, it was just refreshing than working for a fashion company that's just getting started. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So when was the moment that you had the idea for your business, Lavender and Truffle? Like, what was the aha moment? I think it was during the pandemic 
Like yeah. so many ideas have come to fruition from that time. We're all just sitting at home wondering what to do. So I'm wondering, you know, tell us the story of how you came up with the idea for your business and why you chose to even go down the entrepreneurial path. It sounds like you have this, you know, incredible, um, you know, career path. You're setting yourself up for probably, you know, you were in these leadership roles. You worked at Century 21. You could be just CEO of some awesome brand somewhere, right? So why start your own thing? So it came to a certain point where I was getting tired of the industry that I was in and I wanted to switch into something else. And I had to really think about what I wanted to do. And I always go back to cooking. Cooking was something that was very therapeutic for me. Chopping is very therapeutic. Preparing is very therapeutic. And I thought, I want to try to give it a shot in cooking, even though my family are against it and they don't want me to be part of that restaurant lifestyle. I just want to try. Because I would always have like parties and dinner parties and I started little supper clubs to see if I would like it. And a friend of mine said, you need to speak to my my friend who's a chef. And he became a private chef and making a great living. So I spoke to him and he said, don't spend your money on culinary school. It was a waste of my time, a waste of my money. Everything I learned was in someone's kitchen. So get yourself a kitchen intern and that's where you're going to learn everything. So I decided, okay, I'm going to come out to LA and go to my favorite place, which was Juice to Bakery here in Venice, and see if I can get an internship. Uh, so I walked right in. I asked for an internship. They gave it to me on the spot. I went to work there for like two weeks, just during my summer vacation from Century 21. I ended up loving it and decided, okay, this is the career I wanted to do. But my whole family was like, that's not a lifestyle you want. You really don't want that. Yeah, but you're saying you want it. So why why not just be like, listen, family, I love you, but I actually <laughs> love this too. And I'm going to do this anyways. Like, why not do that? Yeah. So there's the practical side that my dad has ingrained in me. He's like, it's not practical. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to figure out. I don't want to throw away 20 years of experience in my fashion career down the tubes just to do something completely different. So what can I utilize from that? in the food industry. And I thought, okay, I know how to create a brand, create a product collection, a product line and build it and how to launch it. So why don't I come out with a food product? And I thought about coming out with a line of Asian spices because there really isn't one. I turned to my art director friend and I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I have to create a story around it and how to use it and be educational about it. He's like, fantastic. And he's also someone that went to culinary school and he's like, oh, you should make like spicy ice cream. I was like, oh, that's a great idea. I was like, but I don't know how to make ice cream. He's like, well, I do. So I had moved out here to get into the food industry because I thought the food industry and the food scene in LA was getting much better than New York. I also wanted the sun. And we started to make ice cream together and realized that there's so much heavy cream and sugar and whole milk. And I don't eat dairy. Dairy's not really in an Asian diet. My daughter was eating a lot of ice cream and I realized it's not healthy for her to eat it all the time because we get a tub every week. And I decided I'm going to make you a healthier version. And this is when COVID was starting to pick up and we also didn't want to stand online. So I said, let's just make it at home. And I created a recipe out of oat milk. I've tried all kinds, coconut milk, almond milk, rice milk, soy milk, but oat milk was what 
landed for me and I made it for my friends. Friends of Ed started to order it. My friend's friend had a cafe. She asked me if I could make it for a cafe. So I started to sell it to her cafe and it just kind of snowballed. What were some of these key flavors that you were selling or that were big hits? Because you have a lot of flavors and they're all very unique flavors. So what were the first couple that you launched with or that you were selling? Well, they were all with spices and herbs at the time. And they're all Asian inspired flavors. So I had white pepper powder flavor. I had a garam marsala. I had a Chinese five spice. I had a kofi which is made of saffron and cardamom, uh, which is an Indian ice cream, rose water from the Moroccan world. So anything Asian inspired, I developed into flavors. So some of those were really the big hits, but they're also very, very unique. It's not palatable for maybe, you know, the freezer aisle. So lo and behold, the one of the owners of Air One um, got a hold of my products and said, wow, who is this? What is this? What are they doing? Can we get it? So my friend gave him my number and he called me. And it just so happened I was thinking about making this into a legitimate CBG brand. And I started the process, getting a container, getting UPC set up because I had that experience of what it means to launch a product to be sellable. So that process was in the making. And this was a January call. Sometimes with a stroke of luck too, with perfect timing, they were just looking for new, unique, special flavors beyond the chocolate, vanilla, and strawberries of the world. So he called me and said, you know, so what's your deal? How'd you get started? When are you going to launch? I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking maybe I'll launch like this summer. He's like, oh no, we need to have it sooner. He's like, can you get it sooner? I'm like, well, how soon are we talking? He's like, March 1st. And when was was this? "Hmm." This was 2021. And I said, I don't know if I'm going to have everything ready. When in 2021? And because with March, how far? How how January. So you were January talking about 2020. January 2021 with the guy from mm-hmm. Erewhon and he said, I want it in March, March of that 2021. Yeah. Okay. So you've quick so, turnaround. Quick like turnaround. Yes. We just got a white container and I just slapped a label on it with a gold logo. And I said, let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. So we tried five flavors for that entire year to see what was selling. What was selling? Black Tahini was the number one. Really? Yeah. That's funny because I tried that one. It's a rare, I mean, I'm probably one of the people that like reads the title and I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know, but I tried (laughs) it and it was really good, but I couldn't really put my finger on like, it didn't really feel like tahini, but it tastes really good. I couldn't really put it together, but it's interesting. Yeah. Your flavors are so interesting. So, okay. The black tahini was the favorite. What was second and third place? Kona coffee. So it's a Hawaiian coffee. Uh-huh. And I used cacao nibs instead of chocolate chips. And I just wanted something a little bit different. I always want to put a different spin on the flavors. Yeah. And then the third best was the mint strawberry because it was like that a summer refreshing. That yeah. one is good. And I'm a huge fan of mint ice cream. If anyone's listened to any other episodes of with the ice cream, you know, entrepreneurs on the show, I always talk about mint. It's my favorite flavor. And I'm not a fruit person. Like I don't go for the sorbet. I don't really care for fruit ice cream. But this because you put mint in it. I'm like, okay, and now I can do some fruit ice cream. It's really good. Okay, you're like, one of really the few that gets it. <laughs> I mean, I don't because... know if I get it, but it tastes good. <laughs> 
So some people, like half the people really love it and they get it. And then the other half are like, mm, but it's not strawberry. So right. there's a whole story. Mint chip is my all-time favorite ice cream flavor. And I wanted a mint flavored ice cream in my collection. Right. When I first started with all the spices and herbs, all my ice cream looked beige. Mm. And I want to add color, but I don't want to use food coloring. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to use food to color my ice cream. So at the time, I just threw in like one or two different, one or two whole strawberries to give it that blush color. So I named it mint strawberry because mint is the primary dominant flavor. But then over time, people thought it was strawberry. Like, I don't taste the strawberry. Right. And yeah, so it's now not... it's like 50-50. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. So the one thing I would say, you know, you hand delivered these amazing little ice creams. What do I have here? I have like three, four, five, six, seven, eight little, little tiny things of ice cream. They're like four ounces each. That is such a good size. It's almost like it could be even smaller than that because it, mm -hmm. it's so fun, I think, to have like a variety of different flavors to choose from. You don't have such like huge cartons to commit to if you don't really care for too much of the flavor, but you want to have like a taste of a bunch of different things. I like that they're smaller size and they're really cute little containers. So what made you decide to kind of do this smaller container size, these four ounce little containers? And then how'd you come up with the name Lavender and Truffles? Why that name? Lavender Truffles started when I was doing the supper club up in, I had moved from New York City up to lower Hudson Valley to Garrison. And I wanted to start like a supper club to basically kind of veer into possibly a restaurant if it is successful. And I married the two names because Lavender for the field of kind of reminds me of being in the country, lavender fields and truffles. I mean, I just love truffles, um, the savory, the mushroom truffles, the fungus, you know, that you find in the woods. And that both reminds me of country. And I was just playing around with names of what do I love? What are some of the things that I, I like about being in garrison? So I kind of brought those words together and just kind of rolled off the tongue, even though it's a little bit longish, I kind of liked it. And that's how it started. And when I came to start to do the ice cream, my friend Carl, who was helping me with the ice cream flavors and the making of it, were coming up with some names. And then at the end of the day, when you know, you have to set up the business and come up with names and apply for permits and everything. And the tax ID number, I had that already set up for Lavender Truffles. And I wouldn't go through the whole process. If I already had that set up, I'm like, I'm just going to use it because I don't know if this is really going to fly or not. So I don't want to go through that whole nine yards if this is not a viable business. And if it does and the name takes off, great. If it doesn't, you can always change the name. People have done it before, renamed, rebranded. So let's just test it and see. And I had like the fortunate opportunity to test it at Air One that whole year to see what flavor sold, how the packaging worked. We didn't spend one penny on sales and promotion. I wanted to see if it would sell off the shelf. And I did demos there just to hear customer feedback because that is just like prime feedback that you can get from anyone and to improve. And, you know, a lot of them saying, we love it, or I see on the shelf, but I just don't know which flavors or, you know, it's all white. So one person said, I wish it was kind of color because I picked up the wrong flavor in the end. So I got all that feedback, took it all back, 
my flavors are unique to the point where, oh, that's interesting. Sometimes not enough to like grab off the shelf. So I started these tasting packs. So on my own website for now, so that people can have an opportunity to taste all eight and then come back and get what they like. Right. No. So that's how it started. And then as well as to press where they want to start, taste everything. It's just eight pints of ice cream is a lot. So these little single serve is nice to have and easy to take in. Exactly. That's what they are. They're like little single serves. But even then, mm-hmm. like I wouldn't ever even have just one in a sitting, you know, like you, <laughs> you have so many great flavors to choose from. It's like I'll, I took two. So I gave two to my husband. I had two the other night and you're kind of like sharing with each other. Yeah. It's like a really it's like a family style type of ice cream. Mm-hmm. I feel like with the little sizes, it makes it easier to do that. Yeah, you can have your own tasting party. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. So what's been one of the biggest, most challenging moments that you faced as an entrepreneur? And has anything kind of shocked you in your journey? In this CP journey, the big shocker is that it's a penny's business. It really is. Every penny counts. You know, you're coming from the luxury market where you're selling a bag for $4,500. And even the cost might be $2,500. The margin is 50%, but the margin dollars is so significant. We're here. I might be, you know, running 50% plus, but the margin dollars is so small that you really have to drive the business through volume. So it's a completely different business, which requires a different mindset, requires different strategy. So that part has been probably my biggest challenge is to shift that financial mindset and having to find and marry different strategies that I've learned in various industries and how to utilize it here, make it unique. This industry is also very, very antiquated in how they work, like needing a distributor, needing like a possible, you know, food broker. So everyone takes a piece of your margin and you end up with almost nothing sometimes. And you have to decide, do I walk away from this deal or not? Which can be kind of sad. (laughs) Yeah. So um, that part is very difficult and very challenging. I also know that you, you know, how do you think about or what advice would you have? Because I I think you recently experienced this. If you're working full-time at a job and you've got the company that you're trying to start on your own, at what point do you know to take the leap to go full-time on your own business? Good question. I ask myself that still every day. I'm like, should I be doing this? Or should I not be doing this? Because you did you recently leave your job, right? Yes. Your, yes. Yes. So you I'm recently left your cushy job to be full time <laughs> at your startup. What was your kind of moment in saying it's time? You know, every step of the way, there's a certain point, and this might sound a little woo-woo. But you get to a certain point in time, maybe of your age, where you've got to take some calculated risks and you have to put the faith in the universe. And it came to a point where, okay, what I've been doing before is not fulfilling for me anymore and what fulfills me. And if you put that kind of positive energy into the universe, it does give back. It's a little woo-woo to say, but it really does work. <laughs> so I've always said to myself every step of the way for the last two and a half years since I established this company, I'm like, okay, if X 
happens and takes me to the next step, I will go the next step. If this happens, I will keep going. So if the universe really protects me and welcomes this opportunity, I'm going to keep it going. And, you know, when I started this, I'm like, okay, if people start to buy it, I'll keep it going. And friends of friends started to buy it. And where Air One came, I was like, you know, it's going to be tough, but I'm not going to spend a penny. If it starts to sell without any sales or any promotions, then I'm going to take it to the next level. So it started to sell. I was like, okay, now I'm going to properly brand it. I'm going to put some investment in the branding, the custom packaging to justify the price because it is all organic. It is hand-packed, handmade. So the price is quite high than your traditional pint and grocer. It's $15 per pint versus maybe $5.99. So I said, well, if it does sell at that price, then we'll justify that price and make it beautifully packaged for the end consumer. And so we made that investment. And if that sells, then we'll keep going. And then retailers started knocking on our doors. So we start to entertain larger partnerships. Then press start to come in and say, we want to write about you, but you're not available across America. When are you going to start to be available in Chicago and New York? And that's where we took the leap of, okay, let's invest in developing website because if it's, if it, if it is available now to ship to anyone, then they'll be more inclined to want to write about it. So then we took the leap to launch e-commerce and what does that entail? because it entails a whole load of logistics and operations of shipping and dry ice and freight shipments to now taking it to the next level is people want to come taste it all the time, you know, because there's still that, oh, $15 a pint. I don't know which flavor. They're like, are you going to be at any store? Are you going to do any pop-ups? So now we just lined up about eight to 10 pop-ups from now till the end of summer. So people can actually come and try it and taste and buy a scoop of it to then, are you going to open up your own shop? (laughs) To then we just saw a space yesterday, you know, accidentally that it happened to be there. So we walked in and potentially to open up our own you know, ice cream boutique shop. So everything and I can has hear your dad. Your happened. dad's like, no, don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, it's inevitable. You are designed to just yeah. be in the restaurant business. No, I'm just going to be a, so. the food business, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, dad, it's going to happen. But I think <laughs> it's meant to happen. This is obviously meant to happen. Yeah, it was every meant time, to be. Every time you're like, oh, I love working at this awesome bakery in Venice. No, you can't do it. Okay, fine. I'll do something else. And now you're going to, you know, it's just hilarious. It keeps coming back because yes. you're meant to be doing something like this. You're meant to be in the food space. Yeah. Um, so here we are now. <laughs> that's so funny. Well, I hope, you know, we love your dad, but let's not listen to him anymore. Okay. I think that's <laughs> yeah. that's like the the moral of the story here, folks, is like your parents don't always know what's best. It's true. Yes. I mean, I grew up, you know, my mom was like terrified of me modeling at a young age, right? Young uh-huh. 18, 19 year old going to New York by herself. My mom was terrified. Like her only time in New York was during the Studio 54 days where people were getting shot and doing drugs on the street, right? So <laughs> her idea of me going to New York was terrifying. She just didn't want me to do it at all. She didn't want me to travel. She was like, stay in Delaware. Don't ever leave, right? <laughs> But I was like, no, sorry, see ya. And I dropped out of school. I did what I wanted. And it's hard to go against your parents because you yeah. want their approval so bad. You, you know? do. You um, do. And you think they know what's best. They've been there. They've done it. 
but they're just looking out for you. So they're really just coming from a place, I think, mostly of fear, like especially mm-hmm. in my example is mostly fear. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to, you know, get hurt, experience pain, whatever it could be, stall, you know, fall or just not make enough money doing something. I guess in your case is what he was trying to keep you into a secure yeah. job or financially secure. I don't know. But yeah, parents, they're all coming from their own backgrounds of experience. And mm-hmm. uh, most of the time, you just got to do what you believe is right in your heart and in your soul, in your mind, body, whatever. You got to follow your own dreams. Yep. I'm I agree. Glad you're, I'm glad you're on that path. <laughs> yeah. Follow your path, guys. And change is good. You know, you can always make changes. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Well, before we wrap up here, is there something that you wish you would have known before you started your business? Like, what do you think people don't realize or know about starting a company? I think that there's no opening and closing hours, really. (laughs) If you start your own business, you are open 24-7 for work. And it is very challenging to kind of put the close sign on the door because there's always something to do. And I'm always opening my computers like, oh my God, I forgot to do that. So I got to do it right now. Otherwise I'll forget. And so I think that has made me less, I would say, efficient because I know I can always do it. So now it's really trying to put on those guardrails on when I should start my job and when I should end my job and be more efficient. I think that's been probably a personal challenge knowing that I can always go to work and get things done, but it may not be the smartest way. And yeah. one of the guys from my kitchen is like, remember, work smarter. Don't work all the time. Just work smarter. And yeah. so now that's always in the back of my head. What does that mean? What does that look like? And I think as an entrepreneur, you're always going because you can. You know, There's right. no boss saying, okay, that's it. Time to go home. Right. Well, in the, you know, endless list of things to do uh, are things that you can do, right? So you're like, well, I got to do this and this and this. Prioritizing and time management is is really tough when you've got so much Mm -hmm. on your plate. So before we wrap up here, what's some final advice you have for any aspiring entrepreneurs out there tuning in or those that are in the trenches like you? Like I said earlier, and I say this even when I manage teams, like change is good. And a lot of people are not inclined to change or don't like change and they like the scheduling. But to be an entrepreneur or a leader of any kind, I think you have to embrace the change. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a complete 180 flip, but just be nimble and be flexible. And at Century 21, what we always say is stay liquid because the business can change, got to maneuver and take the opportunities when it's there or make the opportunities when they're not. And that's part of being fluid with how you work and how you kind of seize the opportunities. That's awesome. Stay liquid, stay fluid. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Alicia, for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your, your story and building lavender and truffles. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.